Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. Through the years, these studies have looked at the books of Isaiah, Ezekiel, John, and Hebrews. At times, we will have studies devoted to Jewish cultural events or issues relating to Israel and prophecy. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. This information will be repeated at the end of the podcast. Enjoy the Bible study. Okay, Hebrews chapter 2, as we, uh, Lord willing, uh, finish Hebrews chapter 2 today. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 18, and uh, I really hope I haven't bitten off more than I can chew tonight, um, because there's a whole lot of stuff here. Um, So, but as we look at this, uh, this section, as much of Hebrews does, uh, confronts us with some amazing truths. First, God the Son became man in order to redeem us and bring us into a personal relationship with God. That alone is an amazing truth, that God became man, that we ultimately could have a relationship with the living God. In doing this, Jesus identifies with us, calls us his brethren, delivers us from the fear of death, relates to us in our temptations, and is our faithful and merciful high priest. That's just a number of the things that are found in, in these verses that we're going to look at. Once again, in these verses, we are confronted with the amazing truth of what God has provided for us in his son, Jesus. And again, Hebrews is a book of contrast. Jesus is so much better than. And up to this point, he's been dealing with Jesus is so much better than the angels. And when we look at all of these truths about Jesus, we understand why it is an amazing truth about him and what he has done for us. So we start out in verse 11, and we're not going to read all the verses. We'll just take it one by one uh, as we go down. It starts out, for both he that sanctifies and they who are sanctified are all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Now, he that sanctifies is God the Father, and they who are sanctified um, would be believers, children of God. <clears throat> and he, and, and actually, you know, God the Father, God the Son also sanctifies. Uh, he is not ashamed to call us brethren. Now, Before we move on to that, the the, the thought of sanctification here, 
He that sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all of one. Goes much deeper than the usual doctrine of sanctification that we consider when we look at the scriptures. Uh, normally when we talk about sanctification, we first talk about justification, that uh, we who have no hope, no plea, no recourse, that uh, by God's grace through faith, we have been justified. Then God sets us apart, sanctifies us, and starts conforming us to the image of Christ and his work in our life as believers after the point of justification, which continues throughout our Christian life. And, and that's normally how we look at the thought of sanctification. Well, sanctification here is closer to justification than the concept of sanctification that is normally understood. Adam Clark said this about it. The word does not merely signify one who sanctifies or makes holy. And, and sanctify means to set apart. Holy means to set apart. Sometimes in the uh, earlier scripture, the Old Testament, you have passages uh, that at times with the word for holy in the Hebrew, kadosh, uh, is translated in the English sanctify, and it's also translated within the same uh, passage, uh, holy. For example, Isaiah, uh, Ezekiel chapter 36. Uh, so this word, which literally means sanctifies, means to set apart, holy means to set apart, does not merely signify one who sanctifies or makes holy, but one who makes atonement or reconciliation to God. It answers to the Hebrew word kafar, covering, uh, or to, to expiate, Exodus 29, 33 through 36. He that sanctifies is he that makes the atonement, and they who are sanctified are they who receive the atonement, and being reconciled unto God become his children through adoption by grace. Now, let's... Forget the adoption for a moment. I don't think he's correct there. Uh, you know, we did look at, didn't, wasn't it last week, I believe, we looked at adoption, and adoption is not making us a child. It's a very common misunderstanding. And, you know, and Adam Clark, who has come in numbers and numbers of years ago, uh, makes the mistake. Being reconciled unto God, become his children through adoption. No, we don't come become his children through adoption. We become his children through birth. We're born again, born into his family. Adoption, again, is the, is the placement uh, of a child of God in heaven with a new body. You know, Romans chapter 8, and uh, you can go back and look at the notes from last week. Uh, I think it's verses 22 or 23. The adoption with the redemption of our body. It, it identifies, it defines what adoption is. So adoption is, yes, son, place, not to become a child of God, not to become a son, but to be a son placed ultimately in heaven with a new body, glorified body, glorification. So uh, I, I disagree with what he says here, but, but I like this quote because it, it captures the meaning of sanctify and sanctified. Um, literally what Jesus would do, uh, expiation, reconciliation, bringing us to God. Uh, and those who have accepted what he has done are made 
holy, are sanctified, and we are united in him, in Jesus. He's not ashamed then to call us believers brethren. We are all of one. Now this speaks uh, to the common humanity. And later on in this chapter, uh, verses 14 and 16, we're going to look at that uh, and the common humanity that Jesus has with us. But there's a little bit of a twist in it as we get down into verses 14 and 16, which I'll mention as we get there. Jesus was man. Jesus was fully human. Uh, he took on flesh. And becoming man, um, there's this common humanity that he has with us, that we have with Jesus. Uh, so he can refer to us. He's not ashamed to call us his brethren. Jesus speaks of us as his brethren. Because he took on flesh, we who are saved are his brethren. Uh, in, in that way. Spiritually, obviously, speaking of, not in the sense of uh, being Jewish or anything of that nature. Verse 12, it goes on, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. Now, this is a quote from Psalm 22, 22. Uh, Psalm 22 is a great messianic passage uh, talks about the, the crucifixion of Jesus, gives lots of detail. Uh, it starts out right at the beginning of Psalm 22, which Jesus would ultimately quote on the cross. You'll probably hear it the next month, <laughs> you know, at some church service. So, you know, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Well, that comes from the psalm. Um, and this part comes from the psalm, and uh, the later part of the psalm, in Psalm 22, 22, where it says, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. Now that's the quote from Psalm 22. In the midst of the congregation. As it's used here, uh, the writer of Hebrews saying, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. Now there's really... Not a lot of difference between uh, congregation and church. Uh, and I have down here the church's ecclesia, literally meaning it's a gathering of citizens who are called out from their homes into some public place, or an assembly, a congregation. And so we have been called out. Uh, we are the ecclesia, the, the believers, and uh, we will congregate together. Uh, but in this Hebrew passage, it's translated, or the word ecclesia, church, is used. It's in Greek, it's not in Hebrew. Now, F.F. F. Bruths makes this comment. Our author uses the word ecclesia for congregation, the Hebrew of Psalm 22:22 as kahal. The employment of this word is a synonymous parallelism with brethren in a Christian context, indicates that those whom the Son of God is pleased to call his brethren are the members of his church, is called at one. And so basically what he's saying, uh, when he says, I will declare uh, thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church, will I sing praise unto thee. Jesus sings praise unto believers because they are his brethren, but uh, as brethren we are in his church body, I guess you could even use that terminology, is what it's talking about. So, 
I will declare thy name uh, unto my brethren. Now, who, is, who are the brethren? Believers. The previous verse, verse 11, in the midst of the church, when you gather together in the assembly, I will sing praise unto thee, unto God. And so it's the gathering together of those who have been called out, the brethren of Christ, who are in him, also known as the church. And God's name will be declared among us, and Jesus will sing praise unto thee. Now, look at verse 13. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God had given me. Now, the contrast here is to those who have possessed the Lord. Remember as we started Hebrews, and we'll, we'll be reminded of it regularly as we go through this book. Two recipients, two groups are in view here. First, you have those Jewish people, Hebrews, who literally possess the Lord. They're truly born again. They're truly saved. They're often usually referred to as possessing believers because they possess the Lord in their life. The other group are professing believers. They're not truly saved. That's why you have the warning passages. That's why earlier in Hebrews, uh, in the first four verses, we had the warning passage to those who are professing the Lord and in danger of going back to Mosaism, temple worship, and all of that. And so they're warned not to. Well, well that thought carries through here uh, that we are to put our trust not in a religious practice or religious system, even a religious system that's from God. And the temple, the worship practices, sacrifices, all of that, these days, that was given by God. And these professing believers were in danger of going back to that. And the encouragement is, don't do it, come to true faith and put your trust in Him. Behold, I, Jesus, and the children which God have given me. In Jesus' ministry, well, there's a lot of verses. Um, John, I, we're not going to turn there. I mentioned John 5, uh, 19 through 24. Uh, Jesus trusted the Father. He, he, he was led by the Spirit of God. He had faith. Um, we need to do the same thing. Uh, certainly for salvation, trust what God says and act on it, but also in our Christian life. Now, this passage, um, the second part of this verse, again, behold, I and the children which God have given me, actually comes from Isaiah. Isaiah 8, 18, where Messiah, who would be a rock of stumbling, a stone of offense to the, to the unbelievers, to the children of Israel, and his children, which would be believers, are for signs and wonders to unbelieving Jews through our trust in him. That's the context of, of Isaiah chapter 8 where this verse is taken from which says, Behold, I and his children which God hath given me. And in that context, I, Messiah, and his children, believers, the ones that God has given to him, are signs and, and wonders to unbelievers around 
that you need to follow the one true God. Well, that phrase is picked up and put here in Hebrews. The first thing is we are challenged to put our faith in God, not a religious system. Just as Jesus trusted God in his earthly existence, uh, those who belong to God need to do the, the same thing. But I want us to consider the phrase, the end of it, Behold, I and the children which God hath given me. This is not an uncommon, not used a lot, uh, not an uncommon phrase found in uh, the New Testament. Uh, we found it a number of times, for example, in, in John 6, and we're going to go there shortly. I've got the passages down there, um, but we're going to go to John chapter 6. What does it mean? Now, now the first thing we should notice here, and, and these thoughts are parallel in truth. They don't contradict each other. Who has God given to Jesus, according to what it says in verse 13? Behold, I am the children which God hath given me. So God hath given to Jesus children. God's children. He's given to Jesus is what it's saying. Now, now keep that in mind. Now, I think we have a parallel teaching of this in John chapter 6, which I understand is a very... Uh, um, I don't know if I want to use the word contentious, um, but is a very um, disputed passage and what it means. So we're not going to look at all of John chapter 6. That's beyond the, uh, the purpose of what I would want to do. But I do want to consider this phrase. Um, you might turn to John 6. We're going to look at, I think I've got all the verses of John 6 written out for you, but just in case uh, I don't hear how should we understand uh, the phrase which, the children, which God had given me? In Hebrews, it's very clear. It's the children. And actually, if, if you even go back to um, Isaiah chapter 8, and perhaps we should have, it's very clear it, it's the children of God there that are given that, uh, that are signs to unbelievers. Jesus or the Messiah would be a stumbling stone. <laughs> Look at, look at Isaiah chapter 8. Let's, let's go back there. This is what he's saying. We should go back there. Starting at verse 13. And verse 18 is where this phrase is lifted from. But look at verse 13, Isaiah chapter 8. Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself. So if you're, again, now we're confronted with the word sanctify in its basic meaning. <coughs> sanctify means to set apart. So set apart the Lord of hosts himself. Now ultimately the Lord of hosts is Jesus, Messiah. Sanctify him, let him be your fear. This is verse 11, chapter 8 of Isaiah. Uh, excuse me, verse 13, let him be your fear, let him be your dread. So you shouldn't be concerned about the authorities, you shouldn't be concerned about the religious leaders, 
You shouldn't be concerned what the temple or church custodians say. In our day, the church custodians. It's the Lord we have to answer for. So set him apart. Let him be our fear. Let him be your dread. And then he shall be for a sanctuary. He will look over you. He will be your dwelling place. But for a stone of stumbling and for a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel. Now, both the houses of Israel, you're, you're well aware, especially since we went through Ezekiel. Uh, you have the northern kingdom, you have the southern kingdom, so you have the house of Israel, Israel to the north, Judah to the south. But the Messiah, <coughs> the Lord of hosts, would be a stone of stumbling, rock of offense to both the houses of Israel. He'd be a jinn and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and be taken. That has been so true down throughout history that people have stumbled at the Lord and the Messiah. You have that today. Jewish people regularly stumble at the, the possibility of Jesus being the Messiah. Bind up the testimony, verse 16. Seal the law among my disciples. And I will wait upon the Lord that hides his face from the house of Jacob. I will look for him. Behold, I and the, Lord, and the children whom the Father, Jehovah the Father, have given me. Now clearly, children here are children of God. And among the Jewish people in the context, I would submit to you, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts which dwells in Mount Zion. And then it goes on, when they shall say unto you, seek unto them that have familiar spirits, he condemns them to the law and the testimonies. So believers were a testimony to unbelievers about the one true God, a sign and a wonder in the context to the people of Israel. Now, carry that through to today. Our, 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 what did Jesus say about our, our light? Let our light, what? Shine in the world, so shine before men. Don't hide it under a bushel basket. Um, same type of thing. We're assigned to the world of our Savior. We should be. Well, that's what it's saying there. So he lifts that out of Isaiah chapter 8, brings it into Hebrew, and uh, behold, I am the children which God hath given me. Well, we have the same phrase, which God hath given me, in uh, the book of John. Look in verse 37, and I have it down on, the, uh, on your sheet of paper, where it says, All that the Father gives me shall come to me. So, same terminology, same teaching, same thought that we find <laughs> actually all the way initially back in Isaiah, but in Hebrews chapter 2, where it says, the children which God hath given me, uh, we're going to trust in the Father. In John chapter 6, uh, all that the Father shall uh, giveth me shall come to me. And him that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Verse 39 of John 6. And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that all of which he hath given me, 
I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. Now, I'll tell you exactly right up front what I believe this is teaching, then we'll look at it in a little bit more detail. I think this is teaching about children of God. And particularly here, because we're in the, uh, coming into the New Testament time, the church. Because the church is made up, the ecclesia is made up of, obviously, children of God. Who are those given to the Messiah back in Isaiah 8? Children of God. Who are those that are given to the Lord back, or, or later on, in Hebrews chapter 2? Children. Children of God. I think it's the same teaching that you have here. Um, Barrett, in his commentary, the gospel according to St. John, says this. All that, in verse 37, panho is used collectively. Where the masculine, pantishuth, would be expected. In other words, that would be the masculine singular. But the, the wording, all that, collective, here, and it's used in many other places in the Gospel of John 3, 6, 639, 1029, so on. Uh, and what he says, the effect here of here being that it's um, uh, masculine, uh, the panho is collectively and it's neuter, it's not masculine, is to emphasize strongly the collective aspect of the Father's gift of believers or you could substitute for believers, children. Because again, going back to Isaiah 8, who was given? Children. Going forward to Hebrews 2, who was giving? Children. But Barrett says the collective use of this in the neuter speaks of a, a collective giving to the Lord, and that collective is the Father's gift of believers or of children to Jesus Christ himself. <clears throat> Verse 39. I'll read it again. And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he have given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. The group, again, that Jesus is referring to here, is there, or that is given to Jesus, <clears throat> is everyone that sees the Son and believeth on him. That's verse 40. Look, uh, it's on the back of this page. But it's referring to everyone that believes on him is ultimately given to Jesus by the Father. And the Father has promised that they will all be resurrected. They have believed, they're children, the Father gives it to the Son, and Jesus says they will be raised up again at the last day. Turn, turn, turn the page over. Yes. I didn't hear you. Okay, turn. turn. We're going to get to that. So let me put you on. It's on the back page. Okay. Now, let me read what uh, Robert Congdon says about this um, in his book. Oops, I thought I was a four-point Galvanist. Biblicists understand the words, all of which he had given to me, to represent the church. The collective group that God elected to prepare as a bride for his son before, for, before the foundation of the world. 
The bride is composed of all individuals who have freely chosen to be a part of her, and he promises to keep her secure until he raises her up as a glorious, spotless bride at the rapture, the end of the church age. All who will be part of the bride will have responded willingly to the gracious drawing of God through the proclamation of his word, for sinners do not seek God apart from his word as it is confirmed by the Spirit, Romans 3, 11. William Klein, so basically what he's saying is all of what you have given me speaks of the church. It's collective. And that God has given to Jesus all believers, the called out ones, the church. William Klein says this, Jesus teaches that a group of people are en route to a grand and glorious destination, resurrection to life everlasting. Isn't that our destination, ultimately? The Father has them in his care, and he, the Father, has entrusted them to Jesus. They come to Jesus, and he will not turn them away. Jesus, is, Jesus assures his disciples that he will not lose any of these special ones. They will all attain to resurrection. This is assured and even predestined in the sense that God's will has determined it all. But when we come to answer the question, who is this group? Jesus' response is, everyone who look, looks to the Son and believes in him. Verse 40. God gives to Jesus the company of believers. Jesus will never reject one who comes to him in faith. This is God's will. Implements his will by giving to Jesus those who respond to God's gospel in faith. That comes from William Klein. Now, Notice the parallelism in verses 39 and 40 as we'll get to it. And, I, and I've helped you out here by color-coding this, okay? Uh, so there are three parallel statements. Now, look at the yellow first. This is verse 39 and then verse 40. And this is the Father's will which has sent me, verse 39. Look at the first yellow of verse 40. And this is the will of him that sent me. Says the same thing, right? It's parallel. Complementary. Now, look at the last yellow of verse 39. But should raise it up again at the last day. It's speaking of the collective being the church. He will raise it up again at the last day. The end of verse 40 and I will raise him up at the last day. And there, him is speaking individually, but the individuals make the collective. So the yellow at the end of verse 39 and the yellow at the end of verse 40 say the exact same thing, basically, right? It's talking about raising him up again, resurrection at the last day. Resurrection, verse 40, at the last day. So the, the yellow phrases are identical. The first and the last part of verse 39 and the first and the last part of verse 40 are identical. They're parallel phrases. I, 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 I trust you all, it's not hard to see, okay? Uh, you know, they're very clearly parallel. Now, 
Look at the blue. The blue, let's do the green first. They're a little bit different. But 40 gives commentary on 39. In verse 39, I should lose nothing. Now, Jesus is not going to lose anything that's given to him. It's those who are believers, those who are the church. Why is he not going to lose anything? Because they have everlasting life, verse 40. The promise to every believer is everlasting life resurrection. Because we have everlasting life, we're not going to be lost, which is what verse 39 says. Um, I will lose nothing, Jesus says, because we have everlasting life. And because we have everlasting life, because we are not going, Jesus is not going to lose anyone, ultimately we are all going to be the last yellow what? Resurrected. Okay, see that? Now, look at the blue, which are also parallel phrases. They complement each other. And within the middle two, the, 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 the yellows say essentially the same thing. The first one, this is the Father's will which has sent me. The last yellow, resurrection. I will raise them up. The green phrase, I'm not going to lose anything because they have everlasting life, and I can't lie. So they are going to be rich. So it, it complements each other. It explains each other. The same with the blue. It complements each other. It explains each other. That of all which he hath given me, the Father has given to Jesus all. What is And who is the all? What has the Father given to Jesus? That's the blue of verse 40. Everyone which sees the Son and believes on him. Whoever sees the Son, believes on him, God the Father, that person becomes a child of God, and God the Father has given that person, ultimately collectively the church, that none of them will be lost. Jesus won't lose any of them because they have been promised eternal life and they will have eternal life in the future because they will resurrect. This parallels what is initially taught back in Isaiah chapter 8, which is then taught future in the book of Hebrews that the children, God had given the children to Jesus. It's saying the same thing here. This is not unbelievers that God has given to be saved. This is people who have called on the name of the Lord, who are children of God, that God has given to Jesus to take care of. He won't lose one of them. You know, it goes on, and there's so much in John. He goes on in John chapter 10, and he says, uh, you know, they're in my hand, and I'm in the Father, and I'm not going to lose one of them. Talking about what we would talk about, eternal security. So, look at the next phrase. God has given his children, the church, 
to Jesus to be kept by him until the day of the resurrection. That's the rapture. And we are to have faith that God will do this. Faith in God as opposed to faith in a religious system. So he's challenging us to have faith in God. In Hebrews now we're talking about because of what God is going to do. Now, the thought here, and I hope you're tracking with me, the thought here gets back to the Hebrews chapter 2 passage. But, but, but I wanted to go to John 6. and we're not, I, There's a lot of other verses in chapter 6, I know. And some of you are thinking, why don't you cover those? Well, that's not the intent of what I want to look at. I'm, I, I'm, I'm focusing in on that phrase, the children that God had given me, which comes from Isaiah, which talks the same thing, the children that God had given to the Messiah as a testimony. That's the same concept in John chapter 6 here. It's children. Who are children? Everyone that sees the Son and believes on him. God the Father has given them into the hands of Jesus to keep. And they will be resurrected because they have eternal life. Not one will be lost. So in Hebrews chapter 2, the, 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 the argument, the challenge, trust in God. Have faith in God and not in a religious system. But here, is, the thought here paralyzed what we looked at in verse 9. Now, not directly in verse 9. Remember in verse 9, last week, we looked at that Jesus should taste death for every man. And we considered the concept of uh, unlimited atonement. Okay? Clearly, the Bible teaches unlimited atonement. Um, that's why a lot of people who uh, call themselves, and we talked about this last week, Calvinists will say, well, I'm not a five-point Calvinist, I'm a four-point Calvinist. Because they just cannot accept the limited atonement that Jesus jo just died for the elect for a certain few. There are too many verses. Uh, Rob Congdon, for example, for many, many years, most of his Christian life was a four-point Calvinist. Um, we looked at that last week, but then in the context of all of that, if you remember, we looked at Romans chapter 8, and we looked at Ephesians chapter 1. Very briefly, I agree. Very briefly, but we looked at the concept of adoption. And adoption, again, Adam Clark is wrong, has nothing to do with being put into God's family. Look at Romans chapter 8. And the reason I'm bringing this out is because this teaching complements, parallels John 6, Hebrews 2, Isaiah chapter 8, with no contradiction. In Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 21. Because the creature itself also shall de be delivered from the bondage of corruption under the glorious liberty of the children of God. Who are the only ones that promised the liberty? Children of God. And we are going to be delivered one day from the bondage of corruption that we have now. Why? Because of our sinful nature, because of our bodies, unto the liberty that the children of God have. We know, verse 22, that the whole creation groans and travails and pain together until now. The whole creation groans. The earth groans. 
Everything grows. You got weeds in your garden because of sin, because of the fall. Everything grows. Then look at verse 23. This is the key verse. And not only they, not only all of creation groans, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, the down payment that there's something better coming. What's the something better coming? The, the liberty that the children of God will know one day when we get to heaven and have a new body. We have the first fruits of the Spirit, the down payment. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves. He's talking to children, talking to, to born-again children of God, people who have been saved, people who have called on the name of the Lord. We groan today, and we are waiting for the adoption. Now, if you've already been adopted into God's family, why are you waiting for the adoption? Because there's a misunderstanding on what adoption is. We read a 21st century understanding of adoption into the, this word in the Bible. Most of you, many of you know that Cheryl and I adopted uh, our daughter, Deborah, and um, we chose her. We got a phone call. I didn't get a phone call. I was up preaching in Washington State. Cheryl got the phone call and uh, said, we have a child, if you're interested, for you and your husband to adopt. So Cheryl went down to the hospital, right? Is that how it all pretty much worked? And uh, met the birth mom. Uh, she was still pregnant. The, the child was going to be born in hours. And uh, just wanted to know, do you want to adopt this child? So Cheryl called me. I said, certainly, I, I think that's how it all worked. You know, 30 years ago, give me some slack. Um, and Cheryl said, you know, do you want to adopt this? Well, we'd been hoping and praying and wanting to adopt a child, and, and yes, we want to adopt. And so, so we chose to adopt Deborah. We named her Deborah. And Deborah was born on April 24th. Um, 1988, and, and we chose her to be part of our family. That's adoption today, right? Maybe you've adopted a child. You know people who've adopted. That's not biblical adoption. Adoption, biblically, in the word literally means son placed or child placed. That's what it's talking about here. We're already children. Uh, verse 21, we're, we're, we're in the bondage of corruption, but we're waiting for the glorious liberty that's the children of God have promised for them. And not only creation itself grows and groans together and, and waiting for their change, but ourselves, verse 23. Believers, children of God. We, and, and as children of God, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. We have the down payment that there's a, something better coming. And we ourselves groan within ourselves. We are waiting for the adoption. Now, wait a second. Again, if you're already children and you're waiting for the adoption, obviously then adoption doesn't get you in the family. But what got you into the family of God? Birth. You were born into God's family. Remember what Nicodemus was told? But you must be born again. No, adoption is what we are as, as children are waiting for. And he tells us the redemption of our body. That's adoption. 
When will our body be redeemed? The rapture, at glorification. And all this groaning and moaning that I hear from this group will no longer be. And I'm part of the group, by the way. Because we get our new body. We, are, we get our, that's adoption. And that's how it's used every time in Scripture. Now, go with me to Ephesians chapter 1. We looked at this very briefly last week. And the purpose of showing you this, it, it dovetails with that phrase in Hebrews chapter 2. The children that God have given me, which comes from Isaiah, which is also speaking about children, spiritual children that God has given to the Messiah as a sign to unbelieving people. And as children of God, we are to be a sign to unbelieving people, right? Let your lights so shine before men. John 8 is teaching the exact same truth, that God has given his children to Jesus to take care of, to ultimately raise up in the last day. So when we come to Ephesians chapter 1, and he's talking to believers, he's talking to children, verse 1, to the saints which are at Ephesus, to the faithful in Christ Jesus, Grace be to you, that's to saints. Uh, look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, children of God, uh, with all spiritual uh, blessings in heavenly places, according as he hath chosen us children. We're already children. He's talking to saints. He has chosen saints in him. We are chosen in Christ. And what the Father has done is given the church, this is collective as well, by the way, this is not individual, all who are in him, who are in him? All believers today. According as he has chosen believers in him before the foundation of the world. What has he chosen us for? It tells us the end of verse 4. To live holy and blameless, without blame before him in love. That's what we're chosen for. Chosen believers before the foundation of the world, those of us who would be in Christ to live holy lives, blameless before him, having predestinated us. Who is the us? Saints, believers, having predestinated us unto the adoption. Notice what the next phrase says. Of children. Not to be children. He has predestinated believers onto the adoption of children. What is the adoption? New bodies. God has predestinated us to get a new body in heaven one day. <clears throat> Having predestinated us on the adoption by Jesus Christ to himself. See, the Father has given his children to Jesus that all of us, none of us, not one child of God will ever be lost because he has given to us eternal life and because we have that promise, we have been predestined onto the adoption that one day as a child will be placed in heaven with a new body. That is exactly what Hebrews chapter 2 is talking about in verse 13. If I turn back there on my piece of paper, Behold, I, 
and the children which God have given me. Jesus and the children which God have given me. Who's the children? Those who trust in the Son. Believe on Him. God the Father has given to Jesus, and we need to trust in Him that one day, ultimately, we are going to be delivered from this wretched body and placed into heaven. It goes back to Isaiah. It goes through John. It even goes through, in a sense, Romans and Ephesians and other passages, but certainly into Hebrews, that the children that God gave to Jesus are children of God. Those that God gave to Jesus are children of God, those who have believed on him, and he will raise them up in the last day. So what we looked at last week, and when we expanded uh, on, the, on, the, on the teaching of adoption is the glorification of our body, and predestination as the destiny of all saved people to have new bodies in heaven one day parallels what verse 13 here says in Hebrews. That the Father has given the children unto Jesus is what he's talking about. We are very secure. This is, this is amazing. This is awesome. There's, he will never let go. He will not lose one of his children, and every single one of his children will have resurrection, eternal life, be placed in heaven one day with a new body because that's his promise to us. And the Father has given us to him, to Jesus. Then look at verse 14. <clears throat> For as much then... As the children, and he's talking specifically to believers here, as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. The latter phrase we'll look at shortly, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. For as much then, why could Jesus call us brethren? Because he took on flesh. He became one of us. But he gives us more detail here in verse 14. He'll give us more additional detail in verse 16. But starting in verse 14, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself, Jesus himself, likewise, in the same manner, took part of the same, took what is the same flesh and blood. But there's a, there's a difference here in the Greek word. Partakers of flesh and blood, speaking of you and me, believers. Koinonio. Literally means to, to share with others. We share common flesh and blood. We're all, we're all alike. We're all, there's no difference among any of us. Some may be taller. Some may be thinner. Some may be heavier. Some may be darker in skin. Some may be blind in one eye and not have a finger, whatever the case might be. But essentially, we are all the same thing. We're all partakers of flesh and blood. We have that commonality among us. We have that uh, koinonia that we share, each one of us here. 
but when it says Jesus took part of the same, it's meteko. It's a different Greek word with a different inference of meaning. It means to share, yes, or to participate. Now here, here's the difference. This is years ago when I was talking to a believer about this, and he was from Greece. His native tongue was Greek. He had no difficulty reading the Greek New Testament. He didn't have to go to language school. That was his language. His second language was English. And uh, we were discussing uh, this passage in Hebrews. He said, let me, let me share with you the difference in, in these two Greek words, uh, one being trans, uh, translated uh, that all of us are partakers of flesh and blood, but Jesus took part of. The difference between koinonio and metiko. He said, think of it this way. If you had invited me over to your house for dinner, and maybe there were some other, my family came with me, and, and, and we would all partake of the hospitality of that home. We would all share in the warmth, we would all share in the food, we would all share in, in, in everything, we would all partake in everything that that home had to offer. But there's a major difference there. You belong. I don't. We're partaking of the same thing, but you belong to that home where I don't belong to that home, even though I'm partaking in the same, everything it has to offer. And that's the difference in these words when it comes to us and Jesus. Jesus took on flesh and blood, but it's in a different way. He was fully human. He had hands and feet and fingers and eyes and body and, and corpuscles and veins and, you know, all the other stuff that makes up the human body. Just like we do. He partook of that. But we belong together in flesh and blood in a sinful, fallen, corrupt state. Jesus doesn't belong to that. He partook, and, and Hebrews will get into that later, he partook of flesh and blood, but he doesn't really belong because his flesh and blood was different than our flesh and blood. We have everything that comes with flesh and blood in the world. We have that commonality that we share, which is called sin. Jesus took on flesh and blood, but he doesn't share in that commonality that we share in, which is sin. We live in the home. It's part of our existence. He was just visiting, as it were, partaking of it, but he doesn't have any sin. He is the perfect Lamb of God. And he said that's the difference in these two words. When it says that we are partakers, as children, we are partakers of flesh and blood. We have everything that comes with it. That's why we're groaning. That's why we're waiting for the redemption, for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Jesus partook, 
he took part of the same, but not in the exact same way. So for, much, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, but not completely the same because he was without sin. That's why the next phrase, that through death, he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. Because he was not totally like us. Yes, he had to become man. He had to become, we'll see that shortly, our kinsman redeemer. He had to take on flesh and blood. But he could destroy death because he was not totally like us. He was set apart. He was unique. He was perfect. He was the sinless son of God, the holy one of Israel. And, and when, he, when he shared that analogy with me, I said, boy, does that, that helps me a whole lot in understanding the difference between these two words and what it means. Essentially, Jesus becoming man was that he might become our redeemer. So he had to be the perfect lamb of God. To be the redeemer of sinful mankind, he had to be our kinsman redeemer, our goel. Uh, one of the references to God in the Old Testament is redeemer. Of the 18 times it is used of God, Redeemer, 13 of those times is found in Isaiah. I didn't put all of those in Isaiah, but some of them, where God is referred to as the Goel, the kinsman Redeemer. Uh, and the kinsman Redeemer, which is spoken of back in the law, there are three requirements to be a kinsman Redeemer. Number one, you had to be willing. You know, when, when we think of uh, the kinsman Redeemer and, the, and that concept, what book of the Bible should you be or are you thinking about when we talk about the kinsman redeemer? Ruth, exactly. You know, you know the story of Ruth, this Moabitess woman. Um, Naomi, her, uh, her mother-in-law, had gone down to, uh, uh, to Moab uh, and, and she married the son, one of the sons of uh, Naomi and, and they died and uh, uh, the other gal went back to her... Um, uh, pagan gods and such. But what, would, what did Ruth said? Ah, your God will be my God, and your people will be. And he said, I'm going to go with you, because you have the truth. And so she went back, and when they got back in the land, <coughs> uh, Boaz, you know, the gleaning of the fields and all of that and that type of thing, and, uh, and uh, he was... Uh, if not married, I'm not sure whether he was ever married or a widower, but he wasn't married at the time. And um, anyway, Ruth needed someone to raise up children for her posterity. And Boaz was not the nearest kin. It was somebody else. He had first options on this. And so they went to this nearer kinsman relative, he didn't want to do it. He wasn't willing. And Boaz said, okay, I'm willing. See, the first requirement of a kinsman redeemer is you had to be willing. See, God was willing to save us. He was more than willing to save us. You also have to be able. You had to have the ability to be the kinsman redeemer. And this nearer of kin wasn't willing said he didn't have the ability, and so he didn't want to do it. 
God is willing. God is certainly able to be our kinsman redeemer. But what's the third requirement of the kinsman redeemer? You have to be the nearest kin. You have to be related. You have to be of flesh and blood. God was willing. God was able. But to become our kinsman redeemer, what did he have to do then? He had to become one of us. He had to become man. And he did. Without sin, that through his death, he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. You know, the, the, think of that concept. Satan had the power of death. Now, ultimately, yes, pointed on a man wants to die. God is, you know. But what the thought of this here, well, how did sin come into the world? Who was the instigator? Well, Adam sinned, and Eve, the devil. The instigator of that was the devil coming to Eve and saying, hey, you know what? The reason that God doesn't want you to eat of that fruit of the tree is because he knows when you eat of that fruit of the tree, you're going to be a God. You're going to be like him. And what Satan was implying was God is really jealous, and he doesn't want any competition, so he doesn't really want what's best for you. He's just looking out for numero uno. And so Eve fell for the deception. The instigator of that sin was Satan. And that's what it means that he has the power of death. And, and, and ever since then, what has been Satan's primary desire? Destroy. Death. Um, see, when we're born again, Colossians 1, 12 through 14, we're, we, we are translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light the kingdom of Jesus. You're translated from the power of darkness. So Satan, <coughs> the devil, has the power of death. And there's nothing he likes better than to wreak havoc in our world today with death and destruction. Think of Parkland, what happened down in Florida just, what, a week ago, whenever it was. Satan was enjoying every moment of that, I guarantee you and what was happening. But God, through the power of death, which Satan has, used death to defeat Satan. That's, isn't that, God, I, the way he plans things and works things out, think of that. Satan is the power of death, and so God used death to ultimately defeat Satan. Jesus, through death, might destroy him who had the power of death, Satan. And obviously the resurrection is promised. So go over to the next page. <clears throat> and then deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. I was saved at the age of 27. I was, before I was saved, I was petrified of death. Even though I attempted suicide, that's a whole other story. You, would, you wouldn't think the two would go together, being petrified of dying and then attempting suicide. Um, but I was petrified of death. I knew there was something out there, some being. 
I had no idea what the future held for me as far as eternity. Uh, I was very scared. Uh, I remember <coughs> I went to visit a relative, uh, I think it was a second cousin of my mom's, something very distant. She was dying in uh, a hospital in Miami. And uh, my mom never liked me visiting these people. This is after I got saved. And because um, she knew I was going to talk to them about Jesus. And, <coughs> and, um, and I got there. And um, she was in the bed. And she said, I am very, very scared. And... Um, So why are you scared? Said so you're in a, you're in an excellent hospital. You have excellent doctors. They're watching over you. You know, with the best of care. What are you scared about? Said it's not being in the hospital and not having the best doctor. She said what I'm scared about. I'm dying, and I have no. I dare where I'm going. And I'm scared about my destiny. She didn't get saved. That's unsaved people. Jesus came to deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. I'm not... Thank God for people like Bob who went and served in Vietnam. I didn't want to go to Vietnam. I was so frightened of going to Vietnam and dying. I was drafted. You know, if those of you who are old enough remember the lottery. And uh, I was, I think, a senior in high school when the lottery was first, you know, started. And... Uh, you know, you know the, 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 the scuttlebutt was, well, if you got, if I remember correctly, 175 and above, you're going to probably be okay. You're not going to be drafted. If you're under 175, you're toast. You're going into the service. You know, whatever it is, you're going to Vietnam. Well, uh, my time came for my draft number to be pulled about six months before the Tet Offensive, which was the nastiest part of the Vietnam War. Um, and I didn't know the Tet Offensive was coming, obviously, at that point. So, but me and my classmates, we're all, one, you know, we just, and I don't even remember how they did it. I think they did it by initials, ours. I don't remember. Birth date or whatever. It may have been by the, well, they pulled that cube out for my birth date, and it was 68. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I don't have a prayer. And, uh, and so I was called down to the draft board to be inducted. And there was about 60 of us there. And they lined us up in two lines. And, and I had talked, I don't want to go. I'm scared of dying. I don't, I don't want to go. <clears throat> so I talked, what do you, what do you, what do you, what do, you do to, to get out of this? And uh, they said, well, you know, some people will wear pink underwear and pretend that they're female. Um, really? It was a little bit too much for me. I couldn't do that. You know, um, y'all know this. You, 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 you know, 
And they said, well, if you have any kind of physical problem, and I did, I had torn my ACL in, in, in high school basketball, which I hated when it happened because it put me on the shelf for most of the season. I had a major operation. Uh, but later on, it became very... So when they, and they said, when they, when they ask you to do deep knee bends, don't do a deep knee bend. And I said, okay, I don't do a deep knee bend. And everybody else, everybody went down and I stayed up. Well, they came running at me like, why didn't you go down? I said, well, I got a bad knee, I can't do it. So they sent me to doctor after, and I ultimately, along, sort of became 4F. All of that because I was scared of dying. I didn't want to go in. Wasn't even the thought of killing anybody. I didn't want to be killed because I had no clue about my eternal destiny. I'm one of these in verse 15. When Jesus died for me, I have no fear of death now. I'm looking forward to death. You know, I, you know it's, it's the method of death, it's a whole other story. You know, we've talked about that. You know, I want that big 1,000 pounds safe to fall on my head when I'm walking down, you know, you know so it's really, but, but I have no fear of dying. Uh, you know, I, the, you know, I wanted, you know, somebody said, "Well, why don't you die in your sleep?" I said, "That'll work too." But anyway, and the German Shepherd—that's yeah—that would have been a nasty way to go. But um, uh, I have no fear of death. All my life, up until that time when I got saved, age, I was in, in bondage to dying, or the fear of dying. When I got saved, you—you you shouldn't fear death. I know where I'm going. That's what Jesus came and died for. There's so much. We're not going to read all these things. Uh, and, and, but look at 2 Corinthians, well, 1 Corinthians 15. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. For when this corruptible shall put on incorruption, this mortal shall put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. That's the reality to me. I haven't been swallowed up yet. It's still coming. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. When I got saved, I had a whole completely different view of death and the eternal destiny. I am no longer in bondage to that. Verse 16. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. He partook of flesh, he particularly became Jewish. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the plan of God. He became a man. Then verse 17, Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he, may be a, may be, he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. We're going to talk more about him being a high priest in, in the coming chapters, but he is faithful, he is merciful. That's to us believers. We're not going to know the wrath of God. And then in verse 18, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Now, a succor there, it's the King James word. It's really not a good word. It's, it's, it was a good word 400 years ago. <laughs> but look at these other translations. Skip down a little bit. 
the NKJV, the NIV, the, the, the Young's Literal Translation, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, the ESV, the NASV, the RSV, the World uh, English Bible, I think that's the uh, WAB, it's either translated help or aid. That's literally what it means. Um, for he himself has suffered uh, being, able to, uh, being tempted, so he is able to help them, aid them that are tempted. Now, the, the word suffer here, pasco, uh, is to experience uh, a sensation or impression, to, to have passion or, or to feel something for someone. Um, as our high priest, he's able to help us because he has been tempted with the same things we have. Jesus being tempted by sin was to experience what we feel. Now, he never gave in. He never succumbed to that tempting. The suffering of Jesus. Remember back in verse 10, it talked about Jesus suffering. It's a different word. That's the word there, pathema. And it, it's something that he undergoes. He literally experienced hardship or pain. He underwent death, suffering died for our, for our sins, and he suffered on our behalf. Here, this word, he, he suffered being tempted. He experienced the same type of temptation we did. So he can relate to us in anything and everything we go through. Now, here's the reason why. We're not going to look at all these verses because we're, we're getting late. Consider 1 John 2.15. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. You can take every sin and every temptation to sin, and it fits into one of these categories. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So when it says Jesus was tempted in everything we were tempted, in every way that we were tempted, and it talks about this later on, it doesn't mean that he was tempted with every single sin that everybody in the world has been tempted. What it means is that in these three areas that all sins fit, Jesus was tempted in these areas. For example, and we'll close really quick, look at Luke chapter 4. When Jesus is in the desert and the temptations that he goes through, the first temptation he has is the lust of the flesh in verses 2 through 4 of chapter 4. Being 40 days tempted the devil, in those days he did eat nothing, and when they were ended, he afterward hungered. So the devil tempted him and saying, you're the son of God, command this stone to be made bread. The, 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 the lust of the flesh. What's, in this case, I am certainly hungry. I haven't eaten for 40 days. Think you're going to be, you're, you're hunger pains? Yeah, lust of the flesh. Verses 5 through 8. The devil then, taking him up into the high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, to whomsoever I will give it. Thou will worship me, all shall be thine. And so the Satan showed him, all the kingdoms of the world, and here's the, the lust of the eyes. See all that? You can have it all. And he was tempted through the lust of the eyes. 
the final temptation in verses 9 through 12. And he brought, he being Satan, brought him, Jesus, to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from hence. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy to keep thee in, in their hands that they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against the stone. If, if you're really the Son of God, you have power over all angels. All you need to do is call on them to deliver you. He's appealing to his pride. Every single time Jesus responded to these temptations of Satan by properly understanding the word of God, quoting it back to him and standing and living based on what the Word of God says. Jesus was tempted with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Those are the areas we are tempted on regularly in our life. Jesus was tempted in all these areas. He knows exactly what you're going through, what I'm going through. What are we to do then? We are to do what he did. We are to know the word of God, apply the word of God, live the word of God, and we will have victory. Whether we're tempted with the lust of the flesh, or the lust of the eyes, or the pride of life. So he knows exactly what we're going through. So he is a very merciful and faithful high priest for us. You know, he's merciful because he knows, he went through what we went, he knows what we're going through. You know, the holiness of God should wipe us out every time we sin. But he knows exactly what we're going through. He's merciful and he's faithful. He's our high priest, which will be developed more. Amazing, amazing proofs in this portion of Scripture. Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. If you have questions about the study that you just listened to, or would like additional information Go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. Shalom.